Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. And we are zooming into 1943. Whoa! We're zooming way, we're all the way to 1943. Yeah, yeah, it took 10, yeah, 10 years in one step. It's great. <laughs> That's the way we do it here yep. at Let's Finally Watch This. And our movie this episode is Shadow of a Doubt by... Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yes. <laughs> Whoa. So important we both had to say his name or we both Hitchcock, felt compelled. Hitchcock, Hitchcock. 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 This is our first Hitchcock movie on. Let's finally watch exactly, this. Exactly. Yes. It's, it's exciting. But let's before we get to Hitchcock himself, let's see what's going on in 1943. Some important things, I'm pretty certain. I think you're right. So what's going on besides uh, some war? <laughs> well, the war is a big part of it, for sure. And since we'd covered 1942 last time, this would be a bit of a recap. Of course, last time we mostly mentioned how the golden age of Hollywood has continued, as we kind of established last time. Studio yep. system. Up and running. Up and running. Classic Hollywood movies. They're, Hayes Code is up and running. Hayes Code up and running. And of course, World War II is up and running. And <laughs> It's like, we just boot it up and there it is. Good job. <laughs> it's War 2.0. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yes, World War II is going. Yes, we're, we're more in the heat of it now than we were last time in 1942. We were just getting started. In 1943, we saw uh, there were heated battles in the Pacific, including the Battle of Guadalcanal. In Europe, 1943, saw the Allied invasion of Sicily, which would eventually lead to Italy's surrender. And Hollywood is still collaborating with the U.S. government. They had started before, but they've already they've been continuing that. You think even there was a war council that they allowed some censorship of some of their films, just okay. to kind of, I think, probably to make sure that they were doing the right thing and being patriotic, but also yep. just maybe, I guess, not... Well, I don't, they didn't have as big distribution, so I don't know that there was any war, fear about war secrets coming out. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't look real deeply into that. But it is worth noting that in 1943, seven out of the top ten grossing films had war themes. Which was one of our notes related to Magnus and Anderson's last season, that it was not. Yes. And everyone's like... Among other things, like, what is this thing? Yeah. Well, in four of the top 10 movies from 1942 had war themes. This one, there's 10 of them. So it's even, even ramped up more. Even more. Now, and some of those are war films. Some of those are just more army. Like, they're they're more escapist stuff, but they're still set in the army. It's still resonating with what's going on. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And though into this context, the war comes, this movie, Shadow Doubt, with Alfred Hitchcock. Which yes. Almost anyone who's a casual movie fan has heard of Alfred Hitchcock. So give us some, some background of his, where he came from, what's going on. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock is an institution of filmmaking unto himself, practically. So, yeah, and it's funny. We I think we tend to think of him just kind of appearing, and we know a lot of his movies from the 40s like through the Psycho. 60s. Psycho. Everyone knows Psycho. Or, yeah. Or yeah. The Birds, or, you know, some of those more big-name ones. Right. Yeah. But who was he at this point in 1943? Well, Alfred Hitchcock got his start in the film business around age 20 when he was hired in 1919 as a title card designer for a new London studio that was owned by Paramount. I feel like it was easy to get into the film biz back then. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I would say so. I, I guess Paramount had just recently established a studio over in London, and this American company, but he was there long enough. He just picked up enough things from the trade, and so by uh, 1922, he was already directing his first feature. Ooh, three films, nice. Yeah. Or three three years. Three, Yeah, three years later after getting hired. His first feature was called Number 13. In 1922, it is a lost film. 
which if anyone could stumble across that, they'd be a millionaire. Yeah. But he established himself slowly building a reputation for making films. He really started making a name for himself with his first thriller, The Lodger, in 1927. Do you have any idea what film that was in his... Oh, how many he had yeah. done at that point? The Lodger was his fourth film. Oh, so pretty early on. So yeah. So it seems like thrillers is part of what he likes making. It's not just like it went off and then he's like, I'll just make those films. Yeah, well, he, it's certainly, well, I think it's a little bit of both, a little bit to be of both. honest. Okay. He definitely enjoys doing the kind of films he, he got known for, but especially the longer his career went on, the more he got identified with that. And I think even in some of his later period, he may have felt a little pigeonholed by doing the thrillers all there the time. Are, there are a couple of those later ones that are not thrillers. One of his very last ones is more of a dark comedy in some ways. Yeah. The thing's called Family Plot, which I've not seen myself. Mm -hmm. But he got associated with thrillers pretty early on in his career. And that's what everyone thinks of him. Yes. Alfred Hitchcock presents. Yes. And I mean, yeah. he certainly would cultivate his own image at some point too. But So he's a victim of his own success later on, I think. But anyway, going back to the his early career, he also directed the first British talkie, Blackmail, in 1929. Oh, the very first British talkie. Yes, I, oh, thought nice. that, I thought that was interesting. So he was pretty on the cutting edge of technology, in some ways at least. Mm -hmm. And he, I know he would try different things even later on, which different types of shots and whatever so he he really enjoyed the mechanics of film too it seemed like oh yeah and in the 1920s was a very big growing time for him he was exposed to a lot of film he like i saw reference that he watched the films of fritz lang okay he so he got exposed to german expressionism uh, he was also impressed by fw murnau who, okay. who directed nosferatu from last season so he's just absorbing all this he's stuff. absorbing all this stuff he's absorbing the russian style of film editing the eisenstein and learning what an edit means in cinematic language and so that was a lot of his 20s and, and his career would continue to thrive into the 1930s with such hits as the man who knew too much in 1934 the first version of it he would later remake it in the 50s the 39 steps in 1935 and the lady vanishes in 1938 by the time he moved from britain to hollywood in late mid to late 1938 he was already well known in america he initially signed a four-picture contract with producer David O. Selznick, who distributed through United Artists. But afterwards, he went through the rest of the 40s as a mostly independent director, which was unusual during the studio system. Yeah, but they usually were tied to his studio and yeah. did what they wanted. I mean, basically. and this was this was a period where directors were not quite as well known as, as uh, they are now. We hadn't gotten to the auteur theory. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, like Hitchcock, Cecil B. DeMille, Orson Welles. Yeah. Frank Capra. Yeah. There's a few, but Hitchcock is already in a small... Minority? Minority, <laughs> I guess. A, a assortment of, fa oh. of famous directors, I guess. Yeah. There's some group word I was looking for. Anyway, but that brings us to Shadow of a Doubt, which is one of two films he made for Universal during this decade. It is his 32nd film out of 53. So quite a lot of films. It is. I mean, again, we think of him kind of appearing just in the, like most of his films, I think, that are well known by us casual movie fans today are probably like films from the 40s through the 60s. Yeah. Even though he made his last film, I think, is from like 1976. Okay. Um, but that was, I was reading one book, they referred to like the late Hitchcock period and then the too late period. <laughs> where he was still a well-respected filmmaker, but he was low on new ideas. And you, he had basically said what he needed to say, sort of idea. Kind of, I think he might've wanted to say more, but again, he'd been kind of pigeonholed at some mm, point. Yeah. So. Okay. So this is kind of in the middle of his 
middle of his career, in, career. In, in some ways still pretty early into his Hollywood career he's yeah. been he's well known as a British filmmaker he's made a couple he's made about four movies already American films but in some ways he's just getting started okay cool so that's Alfred Hitchcock uh Cliff Notes version so what other films are a big deal here in 1943 well, the top grossing film of 1943 was This is the Army. Okay, it makes sense in the context. It does. It's funny because, like, I've never heard of that. Have you ever heard of that? Maybe, but not very much. I don't okay. know that it's on many best it, pictures. It's just funny that, like, lists. top grossing films sometimes just disappear. Yeah. Just depending on the year. Yeah, you never know. And depending how long it's been. And, like, nowadays, well, I don't know. I'd be curious in the last 20 years if how many of the top grossing films from, like, 2003, when, when we get there, we'll yeah. see if there's any that... We don't remember if it's like, oh, yeah, no, that was a blockbuster. Yeah. And that was a blockbuster. That's true. But as far as Oscar winners go, Best Picture went to Casablanca. Which is a great movie. Which is a great movie. We have seen it. We have both seen it. So it didn't qualify for uh, either year because it was released in 1942. Well, the Hollywood debut was in 1942 okay. and it had its wide release in 1943. So we could have watched it both seasons. We could have, <laughs> except we had both seen it. The Best Director went to Michael Cortez for Casablanca. Best Actor went to Paul Lucas for Watch on the Rhine. And Best Actress... Jennifer Jones for The Song of Bernadette. Those are high esteemed movies that I'm not familiar with at all. Okay. All right. <laughs> Other nominations for this week's episode. It was actually a little tricky picking some out this time. I think for me, because this was in the middle of the war period. So there are some directors, there are some actors that have been called off the war. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this will affect one person who worked on this film, which we'll get to in a minute. So trying to pick some out, there wasn't a lot that really stuck out to me. And plus, as soon as I saw that there was a Hitchcock movie I hadn't seen, yeah. it was like, we're going to do that one. But my nominations I picked out, one was Destination Tokyo, which was a World War II submarine film. Oh, interesting. Starring Cary Grant. Submarine films are kind of a unique genre. So. Yeah, you don't get a lot of them. Yeah, so I thought that was worth pointing out. And then the other one was Lassie Come Home. <laughs> Because why not? Because why not? And it was. I've <laughs> never done an animal film yet. Well, unless you count Life of Pi. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of. Yeah. But also, this actually was the first big screen Lassie story. Okay. So it would have been interesting. So it would have been interesting for that way. Our audience nomination for this episode was Phantom of the Opera, starring Claude Rains. I believe that was another one that Nathan recommended, always representing the genre films there. One other notable release this year, I just figured you would appreciate hearing about this. <laughs> On February 6th of this year was the release of Saludos Amigos. Yes, he's the one after this that matters. I know, but <laughs> hang on, hang on. This is the first of six package films released by Walt Disney Studios this decade. Kind of, again, working with the U.S. government as part of the Good Neighbor Initiative. United States really wanted to be on good terms with Latin America. They didn't want that, them to go over to the Axis side, mm-hmm. and so they were really trying to foster goodwill, and so Disney helped with that, with this movie. And then another movie that I know you're quite yes, fond of. Three Caballeros is a wonderful movie. It's the one that came right after this. Yeah. And so you- six of these, though. Yes. Well, six package films. What is, what, is, what is a package film, I guess? Well, basically, they combine a lot of like songs. They're like oh. less, less one major narrative story. And it's more usually a like, collection. Of, it's like an anthology. I mean, like Three Caballeros is basically just a, it has a thread, but it's largely just lots of scenes. Yeah. I think okay. some of the other ones are like fun and fancy free. Okay. I've heard um, that. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Okay. Okay. I think so that's what that's called. Collections of stuff, basically. Yeah, basically. Okay. So okay. that's that not sense. super important from him. Film history, but for you animation enthusiasts, it's and, important. And yeah. the three Caballeros enthusiasts. It's all seven of you? I don't know. <laughs> but this year also marks the film debuts of actors Robert Mitchum, Jane Russell, Shelley Winters, who was in The Poseidon Adventure, which yes. we talked about last season, and Natalie Wood. 
All right. So this is what's happening in the movie world. This particular movie, Shadow of a Doubt, can you give us a, a summary of this plot? I would be happy to. I will note that Shadow of a Doubt was, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and stars Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton. The cast also includes Henry Travers, who uh, fans of It's a Wonderful Life will recognize as the guy who played Clarence. And he, he's great in this, but we'll get to that. Yes. and uh, But he was a very experienced actor. And actually, he and Teresa Wright had been co-stars the year before this in a certain Best Picture winner, Mrs. Miniver. Oh, okay. I think I talked about that. And she actually won an Oscar for Mrs. Miniver. So this is basically the pinnacle of Teresa Wright's career going into this movie. But speaking of this movie, it's a psychological thriller that opens with a mysterious man, Charles Newton, lying fully dressed on his bed with money scattered on his nightstand. He knows he's being watched by two men outside his apartment, but places a telegraph to his sister in Santa Rosa, California, to say he is coming to visit. Meanwhile, teenager Charlotte Charlie Newton is lying fully dressed on her bed, complaining to her father about how boring their family life is. She decides to telegraph her Uncle Charlie to ask him to come to visit, only to hear he is already telegraphed to report he's on his way. And yes, it is the same Charlie that we saw in the beginning of the movie. Upon his arrival, the family is quite delighted with Uncle Charlie's presence and his extravagant gifts, including an emerald ring he gives young Charlie that has someone else's initials engraved inside. However, when two men posing as government surveyors arrive to take pictures of their house, young Charlie soon learns they are actually detectives investigating Uncle Charlie as a suspected serial killer. Young Charlie doesn't want to believe this, but her uncle's strange behavior begins to arouse her suspicions and fears. What do you do when a murderer comes to visit? And we will try not to give spoil much of this. Spoil too much of this because obviously this is a thriller. If we, yeah, we'll see if we have any spoiler moment, we'll warn you beforehand. But we will try to be as spoiler free as possible, so not to ruin the suspense. This is, uh, of course, a black and white film. Screening ratio is one point three seven over one standard Academy ratio. The length is one hour forty eight minutes. In 1984, this was given an MPAA rating, even though they didn't have that at the time, but it was given an MPAA rating of PG. Which makes sense. The screenplay. Let's talk about the screenplay Yeah, I a thought it was interesting. Yeah. So Alfred Hitchcock was new to America at this time. His first films that he made for Hollywood were mostly set in England. Okay. Like Rebecca, particularly, that was the first one that he made for Selznick. And uh, it's set in England. There are American actors in it, but anything that seems incongruous with an American setting, you can hand, hand wave away. This one was a story that was very much set in America. and like, Yeah, like small townish America. Not yeah. medium towns America. Yeah, yeah, basically. And he really wanted a writer who could write that sort of setting. And so he hired Thornton Wilder, who had just recently written Our Town. And got won the Pulitzer Prize for. I don't know if right if you had yet, or I don't know how that worked. I think it was shortly before this. Okay. So Hitchcock was a fan of Our Town, or at least he admired it, and he hired him. And I think Wilder at first was a little unsure about it, but he wound up accepting the job anyway because he was about to be deployed overseas, actually. Okay. So he only had like five weeks to work, collaborate with Hitchcock on the script. But he actually found that he and Hitchcock got along surprisingly well, given different sensibilities and stuff. A big part of this, I've seen one writer say, was because Wilder didn't put a lot of ego into this thing. He, he considered himself an employee. Okay. And so in that sense, they worked really well together. They just had a gr- really good time collaborating. Jordan Wilder's just like, okay, tell me what you want. and Yeah. 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 And they, they bounced ideas off each other, and Hitchcock valued his expertise and experience and that stuff. But anyway, once Thornton Wilder had the was deployed, essentially, Hitchcock did get some other writers to kind of spruce up certain parts of it. Yeah. He kind of saw, at least for this project, he saw the writers as bringing 
knowing that they had they were good at certain things, certain ideas. Mm-hmm. So Sally Benson was the next co-writer on it, and she had already had a career as a short story writer. Okay. In fact, just I think around the same time she was finishing up a book, Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh, okay. Which would be the inspiration for, for the, the musical. Musical. Okay. Yeah. Another writer, this co-writer, of this was Alma Revile. Revile. I'm not sure how you say your name. Alma Revile. This was actually Hitchcock's wife. Okay. Who is an accomplished film editor herself? Before uh, she and Hitchcock got married, I believe in the 30s, if I remember correctly. But apparently, she uh, collaborated with Hitchcock a fair bit. But oh, nice. Didn't always get credited for it, but he did. He did value her expert her opinion, her yeah, opinion on, on certain things. And Alfred Hitchcock himself, of course, had a hand in oh, writing. Yeah, it. I'm sure because he uh, he definitely had a very high opinion of the script. He told Roger Ebert once that once he had the script and the storyboards done, he almost as soon as not make the movie because it was practically already done <laughs> in his head, essentially. And then he just has to go through the effort of actually filming it. Right. He did all right. the hard work. Yeah. Now he. Exaggerated slightly on that because people have pointed out that his scripts did sometimes get reworked sometimes in the filmmaking process. It's it it's tends to happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that he did really value that. Like for him, the story and the pre-production part was the crucial step, and then everything else was just working out the technical details. Well, and you can tell that this, the script matters in this one, and we'll get to that, I guess, a little more. But there's a lot of good movement and dialogue and layering and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The score is a contemporary Hollywood orchestral score. I say contemporary because it, it feels like it reflects the score of the time. Yeah. Um, a little overdramatic at parts, maybe. But the score is by Dimitri Timonkin. Timonkin. Um, he does often quote the Merry Widow Waltz of France the Har, usually as kind of a leitmotif for Uncle Charlie and his serial murders because Uncle Charlie is known as the Merry Widow Killer. Yes. I guess we didn't mention that earlier. The serial killer, he was killing widows, basically. For their money. For their money, yeah. Even though some of the characters will hum this waltz, which we didn't recognize at the time. We're like, it's yeah. important, but we don't yeah, know what it is. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I don't know how maybe it was more well-known at the time, because, yeah, it's they hum it sometimes. Young Charlie has it in her head, and she doesn't quite understand why. And then when she's about to say what it is, she gets interrupted by her uncle. You know, it's interesting. I was just reading beforehand that the Merry Widow operetta was Hitler's favorite opera. So it must have been, I mean, that's the right time period. For it to be it's popular. possible. You know, I did forget to mention in the story thing that this was inspired by a story by uh, the husband of a story editor, I think at uh, one of the movie studios. His name was Gordon McDonald. But it was actually inspired by an actual real-life serial killer. Oh, really? I think in real life. Yeah, I, I, I don't have it up right now. I think it was had the same name. It was the Mary Widow Killer of some... Okay. But it was based on a true story, or at least inspired by. Inspired by, by yeah. yeah. All right. Well, then, what did people think about it when it was released? Did they like it? Did it get forgotten? Financially, it was at least a mid-link success. We know it earned $1.2 million. I wasn't able to find anything about a budget, at least in the mm. places I was looking at. But I know, again, it doesn't put it anywhere close to the top ranking films of the year. Like, what did In the Army make? Or This is the Army? This is the Army made over $8 million. Okay. And the number 10, according to Wikipedia... A movie called So Proudly We Hail, that earned $3 million. So, I, again, I don't know what the budget was. I do know that some of this was filmed on location because the government had really wanted Hollywood to ease up on set building at this time. Okay. And it just worked for the story to it have worked, it. It's in a small most town. of it's in this house and just, yeah. Yeah. 
So financially, it may not have been huge, although I don't think it was a failure by any means. But how did people view it during and after? Well, the critics have lauded it at the time, and they have continued to do so over the decades. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times said Hitchcock could raise, quote, more goose pimples to the square inch of a customer's flesh than any other director of thrillers in Hollywood. That's a nice quote. I yeah, like that. Yeah. Later, Dave Kerr of the Chicago Reader said in 1985 that it was Alfred Hitchcock's first indisputable masterpiece. And Roger Ebert, for the Chicago Sometimes, later put it on his great movies list. And he said, no one would ever accuse this movie being plausible, but it's framed so distinctively in the Hitchcock style that it plays firmly and never breaks out of the story. It just takes you on a ride. Like, it doesn't matter that it's implausible. You're just, you're in. Yeah, pretty much. And we might touch on that more later. And it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Motion Picture Story, which Mm -hmm. is different from screenplay, I want to point out. Oh, really? Yeah, at the time, there was a different category. So what's the difference? I guess the screenplay is just the, um, well, the actual script Script. that they're using. And the story is just the general concept. That's weird. Yeah, they're weird. So like, good concept, but we don't like your script. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, if you want to have that different. Which is an interesting category, but I can see why they don't use it anymore. And this currently has a 100% tomato meter score on Rotten Tomatoes based on 52 reviews. That's pretty good. It is. Well, critics loved it then, loved it now. Has it made much uh, influence in the film world? It was adapted for radio several times. It would fit really well as a radio. It would. Good dialogue. And some of the actors, Teresa Wright would replay her role, and so would Joseph Cotton, although, interestingly, not on the same program. Oh, interesting. (laughs) There were a lot of different radio theater programs at the time that would do different stories. It was also remade. It's been remade twice and was remade in 1958 as the movie Step Down to Terror. (laughs) I enjoyed the title, I guess. (laughs) I guess. It was remade as a TV movie with the same title in 1991. Interesting. I didn't see a whole lot of like specifics like this movie inspired this moment and things, but you know, Hitchcock is just just Hitchcock. It's in his lexicon. So so in this case, it's Hitchcock influencing and not like a scene, like, you know, Psycho or North North by Northwest have very specific scenes that have kind of come up iconic scene so it's not there i don't think it's at that level it's been kind of sort of feeling yeah i'd i'd say it's been overshadowed some by his other films but we'll we'll get into that we'll get into that we already mentioned a lot of critic review are there other reasons we care about this film and picked it well in 1991 it was selected for preservation in a national film registry by the library of congress for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant we do pick a lot of those we do pick a lot of those which is probably <laughs> Not on purpose but it's a sign we're doing something right yeah. i think <laughs> in 2022 the magazine time out ranked it on their list of 100 best thriller films at number 41 the playwrights and filmmaker david mamet has called it hitchcock's finest film and Hitchcock himself said on multiple occasions that it was his favorite of his films. According to Turner Classic Movies, he once said, It was one of those rare occasions where you could combine character with suspense. Usually in a suspense story, there isn't time to develop character. I do find it interesting that both Hitchcock and some other people considered it one of his finest when, like I said, there are other movies that overshadowed it. This film does not appear on any of the American Film Institute lists, although Inter- several of his other movies In do. some ways, I wonder if it's because, and maybe we'll get to this later, it's not as big as some of the later ones or as shocking, but it is just, it's constructed very nice. And maybe because it's so normal, he likes I can see people liking it. Yeah. And maybe we'll get to that when we discuss the movie itself. Yeah, I can see that. I'm going downtown and send a telegram. My darling, who do you know to send a telegram to? I know a wonderful person who will come and shake us all up. Just the one to save us. You've gone crazy. What do you mean, save us? All this time, there's been one right person to save us. Mother, what's Uncle Charlie's address? 
Uncle Charlie. Tim, what do you know about this film before we before we watched it? Very little. It was a title I recognized, but I couldn't tell you from when. Sometime from hearing about Hitchcock films. So I did not have a lot of familiarity. I was very happy to discover it when yeah. I was looking for films from 1943. Yeah. But no, I don't think I had a whole lot of familiarity with this. But you had actually seen this before. It was so funny because and this at first when we were talking, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I've seen that one. And then as I got closer, I'm like, wait, maybe I have seen that one. And I had. And I had forgotten some of the details. And so it's interesting because it's again not a Hitchcock that like stuck deep in my mind, but when I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, this is this is really good. I remembered it once I was watching it. Now it had been 20 years or more since I'd seen it. Oh wow, least. that is a while ago. I would, I think. Well, maybe. Was it before you got married? Probably actually, or right after. It was right around that time. It could have been 15, 20. Yeah. Okay, okay. So it had been quite a while. So I did know something about it, and I remember liking it. As I watched, it, I remembered. Oh yeah, I did like this. So. <laughs> My film memory is not great. Apparently, <laughs> you didn't remember it so well that it was boring to you. No, it was not. It was like, oh yeah, I remember. It's I didn't remember most of the beats except like, oh yeah, that. Oh oh, I do remember that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes All sense. Right. So let's see what we thought about it right after watching it last week. Okay. So this wasn't the quite as intensive, like uh, like gripping you with suspense the entire time. Although certainly had the uneasiness of a situation of a character being with someone they think is probably dangerous, but don't have any concrete proof. It feels like a very Hitchcockian idea. But yeah, a lot of interesting subtext between appearances and what's going on underneath. I can see kind of wanted to process this one a, a little bit. My immediate first immediate thought, not my favorite Hitchcock, but I can see there's interesting ideas going on here. What do you, what do you have, Nick? I don't know if mine is much different. I mean, yeah, it's like Hitchcock, most of the movies be in what's not said. Really good balance of like tension and humor. Like there's quite a lot of, yeah. you know, just the kids are funny. The dad and his brother um, talk about how to kill people. Is that his brother or, or brother? Just uh, well, no, that's true. Well, I thought they, they said the relationship at some point. Maybe I'm wrong with that. Anyways. Friend. But yeah, really nice the kind of the theme about appearances and reality and everything held together really well. It was a very well put together movie. I'll leave it there. I felt emotionally suspense suspended. <laughs> suspenseful. That, that was emotionally suspenseful, definitely. I'm glad that I didn't have to actually witness any murders and that mom kind of drove me nuts. <laughs> Yeah, I liked this Hitchcock. I thought it was cool. I liked the characters. I thought they were interesting. Yeah, I guess that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was quick. (laughs) I think as per usual, our immediate thoughts are still trying to like coalesce. And I think with a lot of these classic films, there's a lot going on sometimes you don't know right away exactly how to think about everything. So has, has your opinion changed? I don't think so. Although I do, is one of those cases where reading more about it, I certainly appreciate certain facets. I do think there was, I had a little bit of disappointment in that. I still contend that it was not the most suspenseful Hitchcock film I've ever seen. I would agree with that. I mean, to be fair, some of that might also be recency bias. Some of the early ones, like when you're first encountering Hitchcock. That's true. It's really an intense experience sometimes, whether you're talking about Rear Window or something that's more, 
I, the more extreme ones I don't care for as much. At least I didn't. I really did not like the birds at yeah. all. But like Rear Window, North by Northwest. Honestly, even some of the films that came before this that I've seen, The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes, I've seen both of those. And I remember those gripping me a little bit more than this one did. Not that this was, this was bad, but I did like his quote about how this was a suspense that really got the focus on characters a little mm-hmm. bit more. And I can see that as like, okay, yeah, if you're not looking for just the pure adrenaline rush, this is a, a better play, a better artistic It does take. seem like there was a lot of... Um a lot of moving pieces played very well. I mean, you got the two characters, Charlie and Charlie. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know if you noticed, I put in my synopsis kind of how they have this mirror introduction. Yep. They both start off with, there's this conversation with them lying on a bed and someone in the corner of the frame talking to yep. them. And that's the thing. There's so much playing with like them being the same but opposite and themes of how it comes out like why he does what he does and what she why she's discontented and then not discontented what they I don't know there it is a lot more character and not that the other Hitchcocks don't have theme but I just they played it very nicely in this one and there is a good chunk of humor yeah, I mean it that's is true. it is some ways a family drama mixed with a thriller yeah and to be clear, I was never bored at all watching this. No, it's this. a great movie. Yeah, yeah all, all the characters are, are very engaging and fun to watch, and you certainly feel the uncomfortableness of evil having visited this idyllic little town. Which I think is one of those the things I think we both stuck with us about the movie. Just it does a very good job of talking about like you got this kind of small town America, and you have this guy who's playing really well at being part of the community. Yeah, and well, most people only see that, but we and the main character, young Charlie. Are like, wait a second. Yeah. Is he who he says he and and just plays with that? I think I thought more this time than I remember thinking the first time. Like, that's kind of how life works on it. Some of those people who just really are very good at wearing that mask and being like involved and everyone loves them, but there's something else going on. Yeah. Morning, Uncle Charlie. Morning, Charlie. Your mother's been telling me about the Newtons being picked for all American suckers. What do you know about it? Well, Charlie wasn't here when they came, but really, Charles, it. Way Mr. Graham told it, it wasn't like snooping at all. It was our duty as citizens. It's something the government wants. Government? Maybe not exactly, but it's for the public good. And when I told him about you and all the places you'd been, he was really interested. Now listen, Emmy, I'll have nothing to do with this. I'm just a visitor here. And my advice to you is to slam the door in his face. It's been pointed out that this is an example of Hitchcock telling the audience something before a character in the movie knows about something that is happening. And he's talked before about how that's a great example of suspense. Like Mm -hmm. this classic example of that is when there's a bomb under the table and the audience knows that there's a bomb, but the characters don't know. And the uh, the audience gets really do something, do do something. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, young Charlie. She figures it out fairly quickly, but yeah, none of the grown-ups around her do. Although I kept wondering for a little while if her dad was going to. Yeah. Because in some ways, why wouldn't someone notice? I mean, Uncle Charlie is very clever, but he also lets some major things slip now and then. Like, he has this monologue at the dinner table about how widows are fat, greedy women that don't deserve to live, basically. And like, is anyone else hearing this? (laughs) They just kind of laugh it off. And and I think it's one of those things where, like, you either like, oh, there's evil, or it's like, oh, he's uh, he's from the East, and he, he runs in big circles, and yeah. he just has biases, you yeah. know? And to be fair, I mean, even the dad and his friend, like we said, they're constantly reading crime magazines and talking about, well, how would you murder me if, we, if you needed to? If I wanted to murder you tomorrow, do you think I'd waste my time on fancy hypodermics? I'd find out if you were alone, walk in 
hit you on the head with a piece of lead pipe or a, a loaded cane. What'd be the fun of that? Where's your planning? Where's your clues? I don't want any clues. I want to murder you. What do I want with clues? Well, if you haven't got any clues, where's your book? I'm not talking about writing books. I'm talking about killing you. Well, if I was going to kill you, I wouldn't do a dumb thing like hitting you on the head. Which is so great. And again, it has that, that other theme of like, we play at murder, but then there's actual murders in the world. Yeah. You know, we do this all the time on here, on middle schoolers. Like, they just talk about things that if you took seriously would be completely different. And there's that, that sort of appearance and reality thing going on there, too. Because, like, the, the one little girl loves reading fiction books. Uh-huh. No, everything's a story. Everything she does is from a book. You mean the Charlie's so, sister? Or? Yeah. A- Anna? Yeah, Annie? okay. Was she reading fiction or was she... I, I was, was got... Ivanhoe she read. Oh, that's right. All... She was. Okay. And she'd always say, well, in the books, this always happens. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So you, you had this uh, fictionalized reality versus this guy right in the middle of them yeah. Who's ripped straight out of the headlines. Mm-hmm. No, it's funny because that, that girl, she spoke with like such a matter of factly tone that sometimes I was thinking she was coming from like a more scientific, rational sort of perspective. But I forgot she was reading Ivanhoe early on. So and I think she, I think it's just one of those like she just thinks she knows, you know. Yeah. A little know it all. A little know, know it all. Yeah. So I think I think that theme plays really well. And even young Charlie finding out there's a section of the movie where like. You basically the audience thinks she knows, but she doesn't want to know. Yeah. So there's this section where, like... She's not certain, but she can't help but put the dots together. Because and... she idolizes yeah. her uncle. And so does the so does the mother idolize her brother. Yeah. And there's an interesting theme there about, like, apparently Uncle Charlie had an accident when he was younger and maybe, like, warped his thinking about the world, world in general. Yeah. yeah. And there's some things about, is the world even an evil place? Is it a happy place? Because, like, even young Charlie at the beginning is like, our life's so boring. But that's a good thing. But she couldn't couldn't find meaning in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of stuff you could pull out. And it, it does that really while being uncomfortable. I slept all right. I kept dreaming. Perfect nightmares about you, Uncle Charlie. Nightmares about me? Uh-huh. You were on the train. And I had a feeling you were running away from something. And... When I saw you on the train, I felt terribly happy. And the other thing I think we really appreciated, which is Hitchcock's visual style. That, yes. That the camera is telling you things that the words aren't. There's some shows that are very talky, like the words communicate everything. Mm-hmm. The words usually communicate almost the opposite of what's actually going on <laughs> in, in some of this. Yeah, and this is very Hitchcock. I mean, we talked a little earlier about how he really pinpointed what he wanted the camera to say and Mm -hmm. what he wanted the editing to say at different times. One thing I remember that stuck in my mind from this, they get word that one of the suspects of detectives are searching for, they've caught him or I think he got killed off. And so they think, okay, it must not be this Uncle Charlie guy. Yeah. He hears this, he goes back to the house all happy and stuff. You don't even see his face. You just kind of see it in the bounce of his steps, yeah. basically, as he's going up the stairs. And he suddenly slows down and looks behind him, and you can see young Charlie in the, the door frame of the house, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting shot because it looks ominous, although usually from like a downward angle like that, you wouldn't think of it. But it's, it's clear like what's going on in his head is like, oh, yeah, she knows who I am. Mm-hmm. And then he returns walking back upstairs, a little less bouncing his step. That was a good shot, yeah. Yeah, it, it says a lot without actually saying anything. Yeah. And that's the thing, you, you can almost always tell what's going on in their heads, mm-hmm. which is not always an easy thing to do in a visual medium. Yeah. You know, they'd want, but that, yeah, he's very good at 
communicating things like that. Yeah, the cat and mouse stuff is is always fun to watch here. Yeah, the, uh, who's going to be threatening who? And yeah, I think you know something, don't you? That young fellow told you something. Jack, why should he know anything about you? Now look, Charlie, something's come between us. I don't want that to happen. Why? We're old friends. More than that. We're like twins. You said so yourself. Don't touch me, Uncle Charlie. Um, anything else you want to say about the general movie before we get to our questions? I'm sure there's a lot more you could say about the visual style and his camera techniques, but since this is not a visual podcast, <laughs> it'd be hard. To, and uh, there are certain moments I don't want to give away in case people haven't got to see this movie yeah. yet. So yeah. I'll leave it there. Okay, so Tim, how about you start with questions that I think it started last time? Okay, well, we were just talking about the movie exploring ideas of human nature and idyllic small towns. So what do you think? I've seen some people talk about this as being kind of ironic, like what's really behind the small town mask? And there's some of that. We've seen some of that theme in Magnificent Ambersons last yeah. season. Mm -hmm. What do you think this is saying about that? Do you think it is saying, try to answer this without going to spoilers, yeah. but... What would you say? Think it's its primary takeaway? Yeah, that, there that, is. that's in, an interesting question. Just because it is a little ambiguous, I think the movie itself yeah. on this take, because different characters believe different things. But what does the movie believe, or right. is it saying anything? I mean, is it coming down anywhere? I guess would yeah, be a better way to say it. But I tend to lean towards some of the ending sentiments, which is the world is dangerous, but it's not all that way. Mm. There's some there's some character at the end kind of mentioned that. Some of the world goes a little bit crazy, mm -hmm. but that's not, it's not like there's this facade of nice small town and everyone behind is just horrible, people. horrible. I think there does seem to be a tension between like this guy who thinks that you mentioned the, you know, all the widows are just fat wheezing pigs that need to be slaughtered or whatever. <laughs> uh -huh. um, his, his very intense speech. Yeah. And then you got young Charlie early in the movies talks about how, yeah, we go to work and we do all this stuff, but what is it all about? Like she has this sort of ennui. Uh -huh. Um, and so they both kind of struggle with like, what's the meaning? But one of them has just gone way off, way off track. And the other yeah. one just almost needed to be reminded about, well, we haven't mentioned there's a love story in here too. Mm. Yeah, that's true. The, the detective that she yeah, falls that's, in love and with. And that seems to. Which comes a little out of nowhere, to be and, honest. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to solve somewhere. I mean, in some ways. Murdering Charlie, being present, seems to solve her worry about is there meaning anywhere. Like she cares for her mom. She then falls in love with this detective. Wait, murdering Charlie? I mean the the older Charlie. Oh, oh, I the, see. It's an adjective. Yeah, I got not you. a verb. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. So I don't know. I would not read as like there's just this facade of small miracle. I think I would read as this. There is probably more unrest that we need to be careful about. I wouldn't go as dark as the critics you said. But I think the movie is kind of saying that there there is some of this. Yeah, I, I feel like it is more of a postmodern read. I mean, like if this was a like 1990s or 2000s movie, yeah, yeah, for sure they'd be saying, oh, all the suburbia people are just hypocrites and high. And there's evil, dark. Like, but, but there's no one else in the whole movie. Everyone else in the movie is straight up. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. They're all just they work, they help. I mean, the mom is completely. I mean, you can, like Janelle is annoyed with her for being oblivious, but there's also in somewhat her naive charm in the sense that 
her goal is just to support the country and raise her kids. I yeah. don't, and that's a, now I'm coming from a Christian worldview. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. And I think it's very telling in some ways that Hitchcock took the care to recruit writers for his screenplay that were known for writing about small town America yeah. and about the good stuff. I What's mean, it's interesting. Like Thornton Wilder, our town has, a, in some ways, an ode to small town, but there's a character who seems like he just doesn't work as well. He ends up committing suicide. He, like, he just can't. Hmm. Fit any, so it even has that same tension between like these people who are just living in a small town and talking about like even ordinary things are completely worth, or you know, living is worth living. But this other guy who like had this dissatisfaction with life the whole time, almost mm. like this movie. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I just I found that fascinating that this is Hitchcock's favorite movie of his own, and yet it has this much more tender heart in some ways. I would say so. Because I think the family is held up as a good thing here. Yeah. It's not a it's not a thing to be ripped apart or a thing that's I mean, young Charles' whole goal is to save her family from heartache, and that's not mm. a bad thing. So I yeah. think I think that it does come down that there's something worth that there is wickedness or evil in the world, but it's it's not all of it, and it's worth protecting the rest of the world from it. Yeah. That's where I would come down, yeah. Okay. Well, sorry, that question went long, but sorry. Uh, we, got, we got to the heart of the movie, yeah. I think, with it. Yeah. So did you have a question for me? Well, I'll go a little less serious. We mentioned that the love story happens very suddenly. Is that a flaw in the movie, or is it just is? Well, it's tricky, because I would say it's something of a flaw, and yet I would also say it's probably necessary. And here's why. I did pick up on this, and I'm not usually the one to kind of lean into this sort of commentary on it, but other commentators did mention it, that there's almost an illicitness between how close the two Charlies are. Mm. Like, there's some scenes where they are very close and like, oh, we're more than just family. It's borderline incestuous. I mean, he gives her a ring. (laughs) It's a little wonky. It's a little wonky. Because we're not just an uncle and a niece. It's something else. I know you. I know that you don't tell people a lot of things. I don't either. I have a feeling that inside you somewhere there's something nobody knows about. Something nobody knows? Something secret and wonderful. I'll find it out. (laughs) It's not good to find out too much, Charlie. When Charlie is falling out of... It almost feels important for as she calls out of love with this one man to be falling in love with someone who's actually more appropriate for her to have an interest but do we, in. I mean, but you think it happens to, I mean, it happens very quick. You think yeah. that's a flaw or you think that just, it will take away from the story to, it's, to add a couple scenes or whatever. I mean, it is tricky. We do see them kind of hanging out for a while before it's suddenly, a lot, I don't know. I don't know how you fix it exactly. And this it, and it's it one kind of, those, of works in the way he did it. Yeah. I think it was a little bit more acceptable in the time that it was released. At least I, I feel like I see way more movies that are about quick romances and quick courtships back then than nowadays, you know, millennials are all like, I need to know you for like three years before we, and then maybe we'll live together for a while. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a different world. And once we all have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank in our own houses, then we will get married. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. You got a silly one for me. How would you kill me? <laughs> 
Hmm. Okay, you don't actually have to answer this, but I mean, it's one of those like when I started thinking like, how would I actually kill someone? Like, I don't real, I don't think I actually am that violent. I can actually come up with an answer for the, that. I mean, the only way I've done stuff like that, kind of that level, is um, with the young youth group. We'll play mafia. You play mafia. You, okay. you kill people off, and usually it's a ridiculous like. <laughs> so it's not very clever. Not like the uh, the father and his friend. Uh, um, I mean, they come up with the, they're doing elaborate theories of like. What's the best way? Poison is the thing you gotta use. And like, no, just a quick bop on the head. Drink this tea. Can you taste? I I had put a little bit of this in it. (laughs) It's one source I was looking at today. Hitchcock thought his fascination with murder was kind of a English thing. Okay, Um, he was like. I guess in Blackmail, the first talkie, there's some conversation where some character is really disgusted with a murder that took place with knives. And he's like, why would you do that? Now, a quick bop on the head. That's that's a British thing to do. But like knives is just it's going too far. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he said he wasn't he was completely uninterested in the American gangster way of doing things. Like okay. Very clinical. Just shoot people. Yeah, you like, got to do clever. You got to be. You have to be more civilized than that yeah. in your murder. <laughs> well, on the same lines, here's my question for you. So we talked about, I guess, last episode about how you have King Kong and then the sequel has to be funnier instead of bigger. Sure. All right. So sequel to Shadow of Doubt is the father and the and the friend. Okay. okay? Give me a sketch of the plot. It's about them. <laughs> I want them in like a stereotypical murder mystery mansion. Okay. <laughs> and they're... Uh... They, they keep coming across bodies and each is assured the other person did it and uh, they keep, but then they keep having to prove each other. No, it's not me. Oh no, it wasn't you. Okay. And then they, <laughs> I would do that. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> they go through the house trying to, and they're like probably the last to survive until they finally find the actual culprit. Sounds good. So lots of, lots of murder clue-ish. mystery shenanigans. Yes. Clueish. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Tim, I come down to the verdict here. Did we like this movie? I think so. Despite the fact that, like I said, it was not as intense as I was kind of hoping for. I was really hoping to have it grab me by the throat and just really hold me there. But it has a lot of really interesting ideas and it's still classic Hitchcock filmmaking. I won't say that it's his best film. I think I might have some that I enjoy a little bit more. But it is definitely a classic we're seeing. Wait, I mean, the whole thing's compelling. All the actors do a great job. Um, like you said, the, visually, it's fascinating. Yeah, I would agree. Second time. Still really enjoyed it. Excellent. So would we recommend this to just a select audience or all casual movie fans? I'd say any casual movie fan. Yeah, check yeah. it out. I mean, there's no loss in watching a Hitchcock like this. <laughs> that's right. There are a lot of Hitchcock movies to see. I think this one would probably be better for you than some of his later 60s and 70s. I mean, he went a little far in, in some of them. But this, I think, is very accessible. And it's, it's very compact. It holds up really well. I would, yeah, I would completely recommend it. Yeah, I agreed. And so that was Shadow of a Doubt from 1943. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to us on your various podcatchers if you have not. Tell your friends, tell your murder victims. And your uncles who you might like a little bit too much. Yes. <laughs> tell them all. Sign up. Uh, sign up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And all of our episodes are available at our website, derailedtrainsofthought.com. And Tim, what are we seeing next time in 1953? From 1953, we're watching the movie Shane. So we go back to a Western after we're, 50 years. We're not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess we did watch a Western and start this off, didn't we? Technically. Technically. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this will be a much different film, and uh, this shows up on a lot of best of lists. It's probably so. more classic Western than Unforgiven. 
Yes, indeed. So it'll be interesting. All right. Until next time, I'm Nick. And I'm Tim. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.